Thank you so much, Choir and Orchestra. What a fantastic anthem to have sung over us this morning. Uh, just to declare before we come to his word. I am glad that Steve pointed out that the pastor's out here. I was, Steve Barden was concerned uh, that if I got up here to preach, people might think, wow, I might sign up for knee surgery too, you know? They might uh, go in like you, come out like me. So uh, I know that'll come back to bite me later, but I might as well take advantage of it while I've got a mic and he's out there. When I was a kid, uh, one of, some of my favorite books were the books with this character on it. Y'all recognize this guy? What's this guy's name? Waldo. Okay, Waldo is made famous from the Where's Waldo books. He's a character that's famous in 28 countries. He has different names all over the world. Actually, uh, he was the invention uh, or the creation of Martin Hanford, who was an illustrator. He loved to draw crowd scenes. Publisher came to him with an idea, and it birthed Waldo, I think his Christian given name is actually Wally, but in America we call him Waldo. But uh, the idea, if you're not familiar, is uh, he has books, and on every spread of the book, I know you can't see from where you are, but he has these crowd scenes, and you try to find Waldo on the page. And sometimes it takes some serious searching to locate Waldo on the page. And, you know, there are even imposters to kind of throw you off and get you looking in the wrong direction. Um, but if you train yourself or spend enough time, then you'll actually find Waldo hidden on the page. Uh, he's right up there. Next time y'all can look that up on the internet and find it. But, you know, precisely because it's difficult to find Waldo, that's why people buy this book, you know? If it was one big spread uh, that was empty except for Waldo front and center, nobody would want to buy that book. You know, they want to buy the book because the challenge of looking for him on every page. Now, I will tell you, sometimes you end up on one of those pages and you think, I think Martin Hanford is pulling a joke on me, you know? And you thought, that'd be pretty funny if he made the book and you're sitting there staring and Waldo's not on the page, you know? And sometimes that's what we do, though. We stare at and in frustration want to burn the book. One Christian man in the 17th century most clearly was able to communicate what it was like to experience God in the common business of life. Um, his name was Brother Lawrence. They actually took his um, writings and combined them together in a book they call Practicing the Presence of God. But he, he writes something in there that's really perplexing to me and it kind of applies to what we're looking at this morning. He wrote, God has various ways to draw us to him, but sometimes he hides himself. God has various ways to draw us to him, but sometimes he hides himself. Sometimes the pastor and I kid about uh, when people make a comment of a book they read or a sermon they hear and they say, man, that was so deep. And we think sometimes when they're saying that, what they mean to say is, man, that was so confusing. You know, it's uh, not so much that it's deep, it's just I don't have a clue what he's talking about. Well, to me, I think this quote is a little bit deep and frankly, because it's a little bit confusing. Sometimes he hides himself. Does God really hide himself? Well, I think we've all had moments and days and situations where we feel like we're staring at a page and wondering, where in the world is he in the midst of my circumstances and in the midst of my life? You know, when Hurricane Matthew ripped through western Haiti, uh, which is a place that's already in devastation and uh, such a low standard of living and um, low lack of resources, and then Hurricane Matthew comes in and takes something that's awful and makes it worse, and you think, where is God when these things are happening? Or even when the hurricane comes through here in places like Nichols, South Carolina, where the water's raising completely cover the entire town, every house, every house in water. 
or a thousand-year flood in our own community wreaks havoc, and you think, where is the Lord in the midst of these things? Or maybe it's more personal than that. Maybe it's loved ones who get terrible diagnosis, and you think, what's going on? Lives cut short. Maybe a job that uh, ended that was unexpected. Where is God in the midst of these situations? Is he hiding himself right now? Because I can't quite put my eye on him. Well, in John's gospel in chapter 11, uh, we're going to re be reading from verse 1. The apostle John actually tells us of an encounter where Jesus, um, or a friend of Jesus, is asking that question. They're saying, where is Jesus when I need him? And um, uh, if you'll notice in your bulletin, the, the pastor was going to be preaching from this chapter, but uh, if all goes well, next week he might be preaching the last part of this chapter. But I'm going to be reading to you from uh, John 11, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now a man was sick, Lazarus, from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sister sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Now this is a real famous passage. We're all very familiar with it for the most part, especially because of the end of the story, because we kind of know what uh, we're headed towards. Um, but John is the only one who actually includes this in his gospel. No, no mention of it in the other ones. And um, John lets us know that Lazarus, who's a beloved friend of Jesus, is sick. Mary and Martha are concerned. They're in Bethany with him. And we don't know the extent of Jesus' friendship with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Um, what we do know is that um, he was an unwelcome guest in a lot of people's homes at this period of time in history. Um, he was walking around and he was preaching that he was the son of God and people thought he was crazy. They thought he was devil possessed. You know, even his family was having a hard time with Jesus because they're like, I don't know what he's saying. We don't know what to do with him. But there was this, you know, family um, that would take him in. In fact, Jesus himself said, foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. But there was one family, one family that would open its doors to Jesus when he was in and around Jesus, uh, in and around Jerusalem. And this was the family of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, two sisters and a brother. And uh, they opened their home to Jesus. And that tells me a whole lot about them. You know, we can learn a lot by that, that they would actually open their doors to the Lord. In fact, I think there's a very applicable question for you and I there. It's the question of, do you make room for Jesus in your home? Is Jesus an invited guest in your home? You know, sometimes we might say, well, you know, we'll leave Jesus down at the church or in the Sunday school class or in the Bible study. But I'm not sure we want him coming into our house and kind of changing the way we live. You know, uh, he's a, maybe a little too radical to kind of come into our house and kind of change the order of things. Or maybe he's calling me to something just a little bit more than I want to kind of give in on. So we just, is Jesus welcome in your house? Is there room for Jesus to walk through the halls of your home? And where you live. Jesus physically visited the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They lived in Bethany. It's a suburb, the scriptures tell us, about two miles outside of Jerusalem. And um, the closeness, their closeness to Jesus 
is the reason that the sisters felt so free to actually interrupt his big evangelistic tour and tell him that they had a big need at the home. And so, because Jesus loved this family deeply, he loved Lazarus, and Lazarus is sick. You know, when you have a serious illness or when you're really sick, what you really want is you want somebody who can make it better, right? You don't want somebody who's going to say, well, I've seen something like this before, and you know what they did. You know, you want somebody who can speak to what you're dealing with and can bring healing to your life. Well, just think about Lazarus. That's what he had at his disposal. He had the author of life at his disposal. He had God with us, the miracle worker, Jesus. So they send this urgent message to Jesus that Lazarus is sick. Have you ever got an urgent call of somebody that's in need that needs you to come Right then, it's really urgent. I need you to come. Whenever um, my wife was expecting our first child, Caleb, um, she, she was great with child. You know, we're talking days, weeks away from the supposed delivery. I come down uh, town. It's Tuesday, mid-morning, and I get a call from Rachel. And she says, I think my water broke. Now, I'm like, if you want to know how to send a husband into a panic, I don't know what that means. What do you mean? You're, you think you're, what, what, what's going on? So I start panicking through this whole thing. And she's like, calm down, you'll be fine. Anyways, but so, you know, call the doctor. You know, so she calls the doctor. Well, Rachel is at our home in Lexington. I'm here at First Baptist Church. The goal is Baptist Hospital across the street. So what are we going to do here? Babe, if I come home, what if you deliver that baby before we get down? I don't know how fast this is going to go. So get in your car and get down here. I'll meet you at the garage, you know. <laughs> So she does. She comes down here and meets me at the garage. Because that was the right thing to do, all right? Well, okay, what if when I told that story to you, I said that she called me and she said she had a need, and I said, okay, you come down here. And about two hours later, I decided to walk across the street. That'd be absurd. I probably would have never met Caleb because, you know, it doesn't matter how great with child she was, it'd be over for me, you know? Well, Jesus gets word that Lazarus is sick, and John tells us there, did you notice this in verse 6, the verse it says, um, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. And you want to be like, no, we got to get going, you know? But it's Jesus, so we don't say that to him. Now, to be clear here, the only message that we know for sure that Jesus received about Lazarus was just the information that Lazarus was sick. There was no real clear request for Jesus to come quickly. We need you now. This is desperate. We don't really read that in there. Um, In fact, one commentator writes, Notice there was no request among friends. Requests are not always needed. That's one of the beautiful things about Sunday school, I think. It's because in Sunday school, sometimes you don't even have to mention you have a need. It's because somebody there is going to show up before you even ask for them to come. That's how close Jesus was with this family. They didn't have to say, come quickly. We know Mary and Martha wanted Jesus there right then. In fact, later in the passage, they say, Jesus, if you would have only been here, they wanted him there. But Jesus waits. And sometimes we discover he hides himself, right? He stays put for about two days. Not two hours, two days. I think some days you probably feel like you're just waiting for Jesus to show up. Everybody else around you knows how serious the situation is. Everybody else is praying for a miracle. Everybody's just trying to encourage you, and you feel like you're sitting there waiting for Jesus to decide to move. But Jesus stays in the place where he was. And we keep searching that page, looking for him. Where is he? Where is he? Of course, it's not always that way. 
Sometimes when you're looking for God, you can't even miss him if you wanted to. We've all had days where God's presence was just too overwhelming to miss. He's front and center on an empty page. You know, you can't miss him. Um, in the Old Testament, Noah experienced one of those days. Of course, he's on the ark for uh, nonstop rain, 40 days, 40 nights. You can imagine at some point he's going, God, where are you? Can you please stop this rain? But he wasn't on the boat for just 40 days. He was probably on there for over a year. And so at some point, it was probably hot, and it was probably wet, and it was probably loud, and probably smelly. And he's like, did he forget about us, you know? But then finally, in Genesis 8, 15, then God spoke to Noah. Come out of the ark, you, your wife, your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out all the living creatures that are with you. Don't you think that was a day whenever Noah could clearly see God's presence? He could clearly, he couldn't have missed it if he wanted to. It says in verse 15, then God spoke to Noah. That had to be a memorable moment. Of course, he had experienced that before, but now God speaks. He couldn't, get, he couldn't ignore God if he wanted to. He was impossible to miss. So, and then God tells him it's moving day. And then after they get out, of the boat, he uh, sets up a covenant and he says, I'm going to give you a sign just in case you ever doubt me. That, I, that, I, that um, I think that I've forgotten you. And it says in Genesis 9, 12, And God said, This is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all future generations. I have placed my bow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. In other words, you're going to look up there and you're going to see the rainbow and you're going to say, He hasn't forgotten me. Have you ever had a day that's kind of a rainbow day? It's just impossible to miss God. You can just see him involved in every situation that you're dealing with in the day. On rainbow days, God's presence is just hard to miss. You know, you don't even say, where is he? Because he's right there. I can just tell he's involved. And on rainbow days, nothing seems to go wrong, right? Everything seems to go well. Nobody can ruin your joy. Nothing can ruin your joy. It's those days when you're on I-26 and somebody cuts you off. It's a rainbow day and you're like, come on, no big deal. You know, it's not going to mess you up that day. In fact, they're probably hanging out in that lane that's about to end and they're like, I could pass one more car. Now, most of the time you might push that pedal down a little bit, but you're like, let off. Come on, no big deal. You know, you get in the grocery, car, uh, grocery store line, 10 items or less. He's got 20. You don't even say anything. As a matter of fact, you invite somebody else. Come on, I'm, no big deal, rainbow day, you know. God is so real in my life, it's not going to interrupt who I am. You know, you go home and your kids for the 99th time drop their backpack in the middle of the hallway. And you know what you want to say, you know what you want to do, but you just pick it up and whistle, you know, whatever song you're whistling. You can't or those nights when you lay down, you know, you get in bed, pull the covers up, and just as soon as you do that, your wife, probably, maybe your husband, but your wife says... Would you get up and adjust the thermostat? I could have seconds ago is what I would have said, but it's a rainbow day. I hop up, you know. Baby, what else can I do for you, you know? So it's a rainbow day. You take everything in stride. You know, your prayers seem effective. You read the Bible and it's alive and it's relevant. You know, you have this true passion for God and His kingdom. These are the days that are so full of goodness and meaning that you know there's not a chance that this is just by chance. There's a God who's designing this. You can see the hand of God in your life. But there's a difficult side to rainbow days. And it's this, they're a gift. That's it. You can't earn them. They are not connected to the depth of your spiritual maturity. They are just a merciful gift from God. 
So you can't control when they come and you can't control how long they stay. I think that the wisest among us view Rainbow Days as gifts and they simply rejoice in it. I remember whenever uh, Rick Milne received his nasal cancer diagnosis, May of 2007, the very next Sunday was Mother's Day, and he said, uh, Wes, I'm going to teach the college students, and I'm going to talk to them about dealing with this cancer. And so we met on the gym floor, and I remember uh, he got up there and said, our family is going to, this is how we're going to deal with this cancer. We've just, we know we must choose to run to either faith or fear. We have chosen faith. And then he goes on to describe how sometimes a cancer diagnosis can be like a roller coaster, lots of ups and lots of downs. And he said, we have decided to rejoice in the good days and plow through the bad with Jesus as our refuge and rock. Good days, rainbow days, they are a merciful gift from God. Rejoice in them. Make the most out of them. Now, not everybody can do that. Some people deal with good days or rainbow days and it all of a sudden becomes a burden to them. Oh, I guess I got a smile today, you know? In fact, Luke talks about a day when it involves Mary and Martha and Lazarus. A very good day that becomes a burden to somebody. In Luke uh, 10, verse 38, while they were traveling, he entered a village. A woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. And she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. Could there be any better day than the day that Jesus in the flesh walks into your home? I mean, Jesus was there, and Mary recognizes this is a rainbow day. So you know where she is, where she always is, at the feet of Jesus. She's just reveling, basking in Jesus' glory. Not Martha. Martha's distracted. She didn't even notice how good of a day it was. She made this good day out to be a burden. Rainbow days are a merciful gift from God. Don't forget to rejoice in them. Don't forget to take advantage of them because they don't last forever. Some days are like the days that Mary and Martha were facing in John 11 when their brother had succumbed to sickness and days where Jesus seemed to be completely absent and you probably are wondering where is he or confused as to what he's up to. So two days after receiving the message, Jesus said to the disciples, let's head toward Mary and Martha's town and now Jesus is not aware, unaware of what's going on in Bethany. He knows exactly what Mary and Martha are facing. He knows exactly what's happened to Lazarus. In fact, he tells his disciples before he even gets there, he says he's asleep. And they're like, well, somebody else can wake him up. And he actually says in verse, uh, in verse 14, Jesus then told them plainly, Lazarus has died. He knew that Lazarus had died. He knew it, and he knew it was still there. Uh, he was still there just waiting, even though he knew that. So Jesus says a couple of interesting things in this passage that I think we've kind of got to wrestle with a little bit. In verse 4, he says, When Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Sickness for the glory of God. Now, I'll be honest with you. I'd like to escape talking about this verse because it can get rather crunchy. For some of you who are right in the thick of things right now. But that's not helpful. So we're going to really look at this passage here. How is God glorified in sickness? Can he really be glorified in sickness? Is my pain, is my suffering, is it beneficial in the kingdom of God? Can God be doing something right now? Matthew Henry, about this very verse, 
He writes, the afflictions of the saints are designed for the glory of God that he may have opportunity of showing them favor. For the sweetest mercies and the most affecting are those which are occasioned by trouble. Our greatest pain, our greatest struggle can potentially be the sweetest time we have with the Lord. I think some of you have experienced that. It might be that you realize it in the rearview mirror, not while you're going through it. But in looking back, you say, I wouldn't never want to go through it again. I wouldn't wish it on anybody else, but Lord, thank you for that. Because I just saw how sweet you were and merciful to me whenever I was going through that difficult circumstance. And it doesn't mean it's always that way. I know some of you might just, uh, you, you may just hate me even referencing that. Because it just seems like that's not the pain you're going through right now. That's not exactly how it's working out for you right now. I remember Dr. Milne saying on that same day, he said, God does indeed use such seasons of life to take us to a deeper spiritual maturity than we can get to without trials. God uses trials to grow us in faith. It's like that old song says, you know, if I never had a problem, I wouldn't know that God could solve them. So sometimes by going precisely because we're going through the problem, we see God can solve them. We see God that God can be glorified in the pain that we're experiencing. Well, it's, it's kind of like, you know, it's really clear to us that God was glorified on Resurrection Day, on that Easter Sunday, when Jesus came up out of the grave, triumphed over death and over sin. And we write, you know, our most triumphant songs are about that moment because it was just so obvious, all the glory to God. Because everything he had said, everything we believe is true. But have you ever considered that on the day whenever Jesus was being beaten and being nailed to the cross, suffering, dying on that terrible Friday, that God was also glorified when he was on the cross? He was. One commentator says, of course God was glorified through Jesus' resurrection, but he was also glorified through his death. Any crisis that brings glory to God is good. If God is glorified in illness, it is good. As difficult as this is for human minds to grasp. So we now call that terrible, awful day, we call it Good Friday. Because it glorified God. And it's good for us in eternity. Also, there's this idea that the death of Lazarus could glorify God because it was not going to end, be the end of the story. The glory of God is going to be seen as Jesus calls him up out of the grave. And you know, that's a fascinating thing about Jesus. He's there with his disciples. They know the situation. And he's talking to them, but they don't have a clue what he's talking about, you know? He's saying this sickness will not end in death. They probably don't have a clue what he's even pointing to when he says that. It shows us how much more deeply Jesus is aware of the circumstances of our life, the situations in the world that we're facing. He was thinking beyond what we could even comprehend at that moment. They could never imagine that Lazarus was going to walk out of the grave. He actually goes on to say to the disciples in verse 15, I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe. But let's go to him. Can I suggest to you that even in the hiddenness of, uh, in his hiddenness, God is still up to something. By not going there, Jesus is going to be able to accomplish something that he might not have been able to do or do the same way if he and his disciples would have been there before Lazarus died. He was about to increase their faith. They were going to believe in a way they couldn't believe otherwise. 
Now, Mary and Martha and Lazarus had to go through the thick of it. It was an awful circumstance, but it was useful. Jesus wasn't missing from Bethany. He wasn't missing from the occasion. You know what? Jesus was closer than you could ever imagine. Jesus is closer in your life than you could ever think. Although you can't find him so easily in the midst of your difficult circumstances, he's not abandoned you. If you find yourself in tough situation, difficult circumstances, terrible diagnosis, frustrating life, and you think, where's God? Folks, God has not abandoned you. For the last few weeks, I've been going with our uh, Good News Club team out to Meadowfield Elementary. We help host the Good News Club there. I've been teaching the Bible story. You know what I have to tell those kids more often than any other verse? Hebrews 13, 5, where it says, He himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Because they think, oh, if I sin, I'm not a Christian anymore. I need to ask Jesus in my heart. But no, as a matter of fact, I make them hold up their hand. And I say, I want you to say it just like this. God will never leave me. And so that's what those kids say. God will never leave me. And I don't know what you're going through today. And sometimes you're in a period of time where you're thinking God is AWOL. You know, Jesus is AWOL from your life. And you're wondering where he is and what it is that you did to make him hide himself from you. Don't believe the lie that he has abandoned you. In fact, you can just pull it out. You can say, the Bible tells me God will never leave me in those situations. If you are in Christ, then you have the promise of God's presence in your life forever. But sometimes our feelings deceive us and we think he's not there. Beloved, he has not forgotten you. In fact, he says, look, I've inscribed you on the palm of my hand. Our Heavenly Father has a long memory. I don't care who you are, you can't escape his memory. He knows you. But as Mary and Martha are waiting for Jesus to arrive, you have to imagine that they're kind of pained to lay their eyes on Jesus. They just want to see him, to know that he's there, to know that he cares. Thomas Merton said, if you find God with great ease, perhaps it's not God that you found. You have to learn sometimes to be able to trust the author of life when life is getting confusion. You have to believe that God has a good reason for hiding himself right now. So Lazarus is still in the tomb whenever Jesus shows up. And John shows us that when Martha hears that Jesus is coming, she runs out to meet him. And you can imagine, she's carrying a heavy weight right now. Where were you? You know, this is the, the one she wanted to see, the one she sent for. And in verse 21, it says, Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And I think sometimes we say that same things, same thing. Maybe we say it in... Inside, not necessarily out loud. But we think, God, if you would have been here, if you would have stepped in, why would you have allowed this, Lord? Where was God when this was going on? Lord, if you had been here, if you had been here. And even Christ's words to Martha aren't very comforting. She sa he says to her in verse 23, your brother will rise again. And you almost sounds like, think that sounds like every well-meaning preacher, you know, when they don't know what to say. And they still feel like they got to say something. Well, he'll rise again. He's in heaven. And it's just not as comforting sometimes when you're in the midst of that right there. Verse 24, Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die ever. Do you believe this? You know, Jesus liked these I am statements. In fact, John records at least seven of them that he clearly stated. 
where he said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. And here he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Now there's kind of subtle power in there for us when we read that, but it was very overt for a Jewish reader or for a Jewish listener when Jesus would have said that. Because to say I am has this all kind of theological meaning behind it. Because they know the great I am. And so I am means that Jesus is self-sufficient for that. I am not, you are not, but Jesus says I am. But Jesus says I am in all of our situations. So with this statement, Jesus moves Martha from kind of an abstract belief in resurrection you know, on, that will take place at the last day to all of a sudden a personalized trust in Jesus that he is over life and death and my circumstances right now. Verse 27, she says, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. I think this is part of the reason why we have days where God seems AWOL. You know, he uses these days to teach us, to trust him. He's not absent from our lives. He has a plan. And you know what, though? Death was not part of his plan. The naturalist tells us that that's kind of the natural stage of life. But it was not God's plan. The scriptures say, Paul spoke of death as the last great enemy. Jesus is even grieved by death in this passage. Pain was not his plan. Separation was not his plan. Anxiety, grief, strife, those were not his plan. So God in the flesh weeps there. God wept. So God understands our tears. So is God still sovereign over our life if that's how we, when he seems absent like this? Well, I think some days God seems more elusive than others. But we can know God is at work. For the believer, death is an enemy, but it is a weakened enemy. Because Jesus triumphed over it, and through Jesus, we can have victory over death. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Do you believe in Jesus? We're all going to die. But for those who believe in Jesus, we'll live even though they die. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have time to study your word. God, and we thank you that we have the truth of your word. Knowing that you are the resurrection and the life. And Father, if we place our trust in you, you give us hope for a future. And a future eternity with you. I pray, Father, today as we just respond to this message, that you would speak to each heart. And you would take control. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If God's stirring in your heart, we're going to have an invitation. Some of you may need to pray with someone. Some of you may need to get it right. And you may need to ask Jesus in your heart. Some of you may need to join the fellowship of our church. I'm going to invite everybody to stand. As our choir sings, you respond.